0: Now, this afternoon, as we continue on in our study of Luke's gospel, we come to a section known as the Olivet Discourse. It's in chapter 21, beginning in verse five. if you're using our uh, Pew Bibles, you can find that on page 880. Now, there are uh, parallel accounts of this passage in, in both Mark and Matthew's gospel. It's in this discourse that Christ tells his disciples of the destruction of the temple the destruction of Jerusalem, and even the second coming of the Son of Man. Now, the theological term for this study, for the study of, of end times, is called eschatology. I'm sure most of you have heard this word before. It literally means the study of last things. So you might hear terms like the eschaton, which really is the final event in God's plan, the final event at the end of the world. Or you might hear the term parousia, which literally means the, the coming or in this case, the second coming of Christ. So when I use these terms, or if Pastor Kerr in the coming weeks is using these terms, uh, you'll know what they mean. Um, And even if you don't, sometimes as you're reading different literature and you see these terms thrown out, and you're like, I feel like this is important. I should know what this means. uh, Keep those in mind. Those are good terms to know so that you can identify what's happening in, in what you're reading. And so I say this week or in the coming weeks when Pastor Kerr uh, will be preaching on some of this, if you pay attention in your bulletin, you can see that this says uh, part one. Uh, So the the Olivet Discourse is a fairly lengthy passage, uh, and as Matthew and I have prayed about it, we felt led to at least split it up into three sermons. So this will be the first of probably three, potentially more, as we go. So as we begin a study in eschatology, it's, an, it's important to understand why we're doing this uh, and what everyone, no matter their understanding or their interpretation of, of this passage and, and other passages where the future and the end times are prophesied, it's important to understand what we agree on. So first, we're committed to preaching through scripture. That's what we do each week. We take it verse by verse, section by section, and so this is next. So that's simply uh, the first reason. Second is this is, what Christ teaches. He takes a moment before his crucifixion, before his resurrection, to talk about things that are to come. And so though we won't cover this passage today, Christ says in verse 28 of Luke 21, he says, straighten up, raise your heads because redemption is drawing near. He's telling us these things so that we might take heart to know that redemption is close. Now, as, as to what we all agree on as Christians, Millard Erickson, he's a, a, theologian, a theologian, a writer, uh, he has this to say about the study of eschatology. He, he writes, many of the issues of eschatology are obscure, difficult to deal with. Consequently, some teachers and preachers simply avoid the subject. Certain professors who teach courses in Christian doctrine always find themselves running behind schedule in their lecturing. And consequently, they never have time to deal with the millennium or the great tribulation. But more than one instructor has admitted that the lack of time is a convenience. Now at times, eschatology has become a topic of debate. This is not the purpose for which God has revealed eschatological truths. Paul indicates in 1 Thessalonians 4 his reason for writing about the second coming. Some believers whose loved ones had died were experiencing a grief that was unhealthy and unnecessary. So in 1 Corinthians, Paul says this, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encouragement. The truth of eschatology is meant to encourage and assure us. So as we come to our text this afternoon, we need to keep that in mind, that this teaching of Christ is meant to encourage and assure us. So before we come to our text, will not you bow your heads with me again in prayer and ask God to bless our study this afternoon. Gracious Lord and God, you are sovereign. You're sovereign over the past, you're sovereign over the present, you're sovereign over the future. So Lord, would you encourage us with that truth this afternoon? Would you press on us the assurance that you offer here in talking about things that are to come? Lord, bless our study together. I pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Here now from Luke's gospel in chapter 21, beginning in verse 5. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, see that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he." and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once. Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences, and there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it, therefore, in your minds, not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Thus ends the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. May he add his blessing as we study together. Now listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere on the 18th of April in 75. Hardly a man is still alive who remembers that famous day and year. And this, of course, is the beginning to Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem, Paul Revere's Ride. And the truth of that history is uh, perhaps a bit more complicated and perhaps being just a few miles from where that ride took place, that history is a bit more familiar to us here. But you all know the story that Paul Revere rode from Boston to Lexington. He was going to warn John Hancock and Sam Adams. He was going to warn them that the British army was coming. He was going to arrest them. So he rides a long way, and he's making noise and stopping at farmhouses along the way, telling them that the British army is marching, though he never used that famous phrase, the British are coming, the British are coming. So he's riding along, and he gets to this house where Hancock and, and Adams are are. Hold up. He gets there and he's uh, eating some food and resting as they've decided, Paul, you need to go on and tell everyone in Concord as well. So as he's eating, another man shows up, William Dawes. Now William Dawes took some back pathways. He wasn't making the same kind of noise that Paul Revere was, but he comes with the same message to warn Hancock and Adams that they were going to be arrested. And so the four of them cook up an idea that the two of them would ride out and warn everyone. So that's what they do, and on the way, they meet another young man named Samuel Prescott. Uh, So as they're riding along, uh, Paul Revere decides to scout ahead a little bit. He rides a little further ahead, and he comes across a couple of British soldiers. Now he gets captured, and he's able to yell back at Dawes and Prescott to get out of there, basically, or they'll be captured. So the soldiers secure Revere, and then they go after Dawes. Now Dawes rides up to a farmhouse. He has no idea who's there. He doesn't know who lives there, but he rides up and he goes, hello boys, I got two of them with me. Now the soldiers think, there's an ambush waiting for me. So they take off, Dawes escapes, and and he and Prescott are able to go and spread the alarm even more than Revere did. So here are these men riding, spreading rumors, news of war. And then the next days that follow the Battle of Lexington happens, which people say that's the, that's the beginning of the revolution. That's the beginning of the end of the world as they knew it. The end of the world is, as Revere and Hancock and Adams knew it, the world of the British Empire, on, on which it could rightly be said, the sun never set, it was such a vast empire. That was the end of the world, or the beginning of the end, anyway. So when we consider the, the end of things, It's not surprising that it goes hand in hand with war. We see that prophecy right here from Christ in this passage. And so he begins his prophecy talking about the destruction of the temple. Now, accompanying that prediction is a warning. So That's what we're going to begin with this morning, a warning. And so, Lord willing, we'll move to look at an opportunity to share the gospel. And then finally, in our last couple of verses, Christ assures us. So those are our points this morning, a warning, an opportunity, and then assurance. So Christ begins this discourse, he begins this long section with a prediction that the temple would fall. Now this would have been more disastrous, more unthinkable than someone defeating the British Empire. The temple wasn't just another church building, this was the symbol of their culture, the very center of their life, it was the symbol of God's presence in their country. And Christ begins, uh, as some people are are walking out of the temple, you can imagine the situation. And while some were speaking, this is uh, verses five and six, while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, that is Christ said, as for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. It begins with some folks just noticing the beauty of the temple. And it was quite beautiful, though they lamented in, uh, in the second temple period that it was not the same glory as Solomon's temple, but still it was a beautiful building. It was one of, one of the wonders of the time. In fact, Herod had begun a reconstruction project to restore the temple. It was a glorious thing. And as we heard last week, if you were with us, there were places for offerings inside the temple where people could come and and give money. And one of those large boxes would have been for offerings in the temple, for this adornment, for the reconstruction project that's going on. So it's natural that as they're walking out and they're with Christ, they're looking up at at the work that's being done and they're, they're marveling at this great wonder, at this symbol of God's very presence in their country and in their lives. But Jesus doesn't do the same thing. Jesus, this this man who was so full of zeal for his father's house that he turned over the tables of the money changers and the swindlers. He doesn't share in their adoration at this moment. He begins to prophesy and, and almost lament at the end of the temple. There's a day coming when no stone will be left on another that will not be thrown down. It's almost as unthinkable as if someone were to come and knock over the Statue of Liberty. Or if you are French, perhaps the Eiffel Tower. So again, this was not just a church building, it was the center of their culture. I don't know if I can stress enough how, shock, uh, how shocked and, and aghast that his disciples would have been at, at hearing this. And so they immediately ask, when will this take place? What will be the sign when these things are going to happen? But before he answers them, and he does, he will answer them, before he does, he takes a moment to warn them. and his wisdom and his care for his disciples, he first begins with a word of caution. Before we get into everything, I'm going to warn you. Verse 8, see that you're not led astray. In that day, there were many claiming to be prophets, there were many claiming to be the Messiah of, of some kind, and so the people were led astray, believing in these false prophets, these false messiahs. And now nothing like that would happen today, would it? No one would say, oh yeah, I, I figured it out, there's a secret code. And people would go, oh, I want to know that. That would never happen today, now would it at all? It's easy to get uh, caught up in the fantasy of all of these things. There are many books and movies and things that deal with the end times and deal with destruction. And it's easy to get caught up in those, those false pictures that those stories sometimes present but Christ gives us a warning. Many will come in my name saying I am he the time is at hand do not go after them there, there have been there will continue to be false teachers who claim that they have some special knowledge some special revelation or some secret code that they've deciphered about when the end will come Don't get swept up in this. In the parallel account in in Mark's Gospel, Christ tells his disciples that the day of judgment, at the end of the world, there's only one who knows it. The Father knows the day, not even the Son knows it. So no mortal human who claims to know when the end happens can actually know because only the Father knows. Now this begs the question, doesn't it, why is this the case, why? Well, it's here that we have to remember the purpose of the study of eschatology, the purpose of the study of of end times, and that purpose is to demonstrate God's sovereignty and to assure us of his salvation. We're not to trust in the words of men, but trust in the words of scripture. Trust the word of God. So when you hear of the end, when you hear of war and rumors of war and tumultuous happenings around the world, Do not be terrified. These things, including the destruction of the temple, including war, these things must all take place before the end. But, Christ tells us, the end will not be at once. So so even though we see what Christ has said is coming true, and parts of it have come true, we think of the western wall of the temple, It's the only part left standing. We know that in in 70 A.D., the Roman army pulled massive stone of the temple down on top of massive stone of the temple. So seeing that prophecy come true, take heart. Be assured. Christ has said that these things would happen, and so we can trust his word. Over the last couple thousand years, there have been plenty of wars to choose from. Now, not every war is a sign of end times. Not every earthquake that happens means the end of near, uh, that the end is near, excuse me. But what wars should do, what earthquakes should do, what famine and pestilence, when we hear of these things, what that should do is return our attention to the Lord. They should remind us that Christ's words are true, that he is trustworthy, and that the Lord is sovereign. The Lord has a plan, and that we can be comforted by his providence. So do not be terrified, and do not be led astray. So as the Lord warns us, as the Lord comforts us, he also tells us then of the other things that must take place. He tells us that among other things that that we've mentioned, pestilence and famine, he tells us that persecution is coming. But in that persecution, there's an opportunity. So look back with me at verse 10, if you have it open. After this warning, Christ does answer the disciples' question. He does tell them what signs will happen before the end. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes, and in various places famines and pestilences. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. He's telling them these things are going to happen. We have seen this throughout history, and we will continue to see it. There have been wars, there will be more. There have been earthquakes, there will be more earthquakes. There have been famines and pestilences, and there will be more famine and pestilence. But the same comfort here is that this is not outside of God's sovereign providence and his decrees. But before all this happens, he says, verse 12, something else is coming. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. Persecution's coming. It's been coming, and it will continue to come, and just as we prayed for our brothers and sisters in Mali today who are facing persecution, so it will continue. Now, we here in Concord and Carlisle, and Westford, and Chelmsford, and Stowe, and Maynard, and, and Lowell, and wherever else you might happen to live, maybe we won't face the same kind of persecution that our brothers and sisters in Mali, or China, or North Korea, or Kazakhstan face. Maybe we won't face that same kind of persecution. But there will come a time in your life. There will come a moment where you will be singled out for Christ. Maybe you'll be the subject of a joke. Maybe someone will ask you right to your face in front of a crowd whether you believe in Jesus. And you'll have a moment where you have to decide, a moment like like Peter on Good Friday, when says, didn't I see you with him? Aren't you one of those? You'll have a moment where you decide whether to acknowledge his name or not. That moment is coming. So perhaps you've had moments like that already. So then what is persecution? What is that moment? What is that place where you come face to face with that? Christ tells us in verse 13, this will be your opportunity to bear witness. This is no light matter. This is no small thing. When your feet are held to the fire, this is an opportunity to bear witness about your faith, bear witness about Christ. Now here's a question for you. When you're driving, uh, driving around and you see a police car, maybe you're on Interstate 7, uh, 75's in Tennessee where I grew up, I meant, I meant 95. When you're on I-95 or 495 around here and you see that uh, Massachusetts state police officer, that blue gray SUV parked in the median, it's really easy to go the speed limit, isn't it? It's really easy uh, to stay right at that that number. It's the easiest time in the world to go the speed limit because it's dangerous to go any faster because there will be consequences. Now in that moment where you are face to face with a decision to speak the name of Christ, to speak the truth of the gospel, and if you do, you'll face those consequences. In that moment, it's easy to, to put it aside and to deny it. But in that moment, there will be consequences. So make no mistake, you might be ostracized, fired, and perhaps maybe some of us might even face death. That's the moment when your witness is of the utmost care, the utmost importance. Christ goes on to tell us that some of you may even be handed up by, by family and friends. You might be put to death, you might lose fellowship with your family and certainly we read in verse 17 you will be hated by all these are the consequences you might be separated from your family of unbelievers you might lose your job or your career your steady source of income your finances your very life might be the cost of your witness but in that moment that's the opportunity That's when the truth of the gospel can be seen in a powerful, powerful way. So what do we do in that moment? (laughs) That's the question. In that moment, what do we do? The temptation is to think of a way out of it, isn't it? To defend ourselves, to weasel our way out somehow, and maybe try not to deny Christ, but not suffer the consequences either. That's the temptation, is to middle road it somehow verse 14 settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer what a strange command from our Lord don't meditate how to answer it doesn't it seems like the thing we should be doing because if this is a promise that it's coming we ought to be thinking about these things but the word answer stuck out to me as I was looking at the Greek Uh, It's not the word I expected to see for the word answer, so I dug in a little deeper. And what that word really means is uh, defend yourself, answer, give an answer to false charges, charges that, that we know aren't true. But if you are a Christian and someone asks you that, if you're put on the spot and you have that choice to say whether you're a Christian or not, those charges are not false. That is something that's true. So if you're a Christian facing persecution, be a Christian. Be a Christian facing whatever it is you're facing. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote in his book, The Cost of Discipleship, he writes, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. Bonhoeffer meant this phrase in every way. He meant it die to yourself, die to sin, but he also meant it literally. Jesus bids us come and die. But we're not left on our own in that moment either. In that moment of persecution, who could carry that? The weight of that responsibility, the weight of the magnitude of that opportunity to share the gospel, which of us could bear that? So Christ says, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. Christ will be with you. Let's first talk about what this doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christ is guaranteeing you get out of that situation scot-free. It doesn't mean that you'll be seen as some great speaker or preacher or apologetic genius. It's not what it means. It doesn't mean that you won't face those consequences we've already talked about. It doesn't mean you won't face those What it does mean is that Jesus will be with you. It means that if you belong to him, that in that moment, your witness will be true. It will be a testimony of God working in you and through you to share the gospel. No one who hears will be able to say that you're a hypocrite, that you don't actually believe. They will hear Christ proclaimed and they will see it in that moment. Brothers and sisters, persecution is an opportunity it's an opportunity for God to work in you and through you, an opportunity for the truth of the gospel to be spread in a powerful way. Now, this also doesn't mean that we have license to stop praying. We have license to stop reading our Bible or stop coming to worship. Christ will work through you in those, in those times. But think back to Stephen, the first martyr. As he's being stoned or he's about to be stoned, he gives a sermon and he recounts the history of Israel. He goes back to the scriptures and he tells the truth of Christ as we see it all throughout the Old Testament. But what comes to mind in Stephen? Scripture. Christ may speak through us by bringing to mind the words which he's already given us, the words which he's already written down for us in Scripture. And through prayer, constant prayer, we may learn to listen to his spirit guiding you and so we can listen to him bringing to mind those things which he's telling us. So friends, be ready. Because persecution is coming and it's an opportunity to share the gospel. And this is a truth that we need to accept. And just as we saw that Christ's words are are trustworthy and true about His, his prophecy of the future, so they're true about the promise of persecution but his word is also true about our our final verses. So in these final two verses, we read that Christ offers us assurance. He concludes this section by telling his disciples that not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. So here, in this difficult section, full of of difficult teachings, theological questions, Christ inserts a few lines of, of hope a few lines of assurance, and yes, he will go on to continue with some more hard teachings that we'll look at in the weeks to come, but here he takes a moment in in the midst of these prophecies of destruction, this unthinkable prophecy of the destruction of the temple, these prophecies of persecution, he takes a moment to assure us that by our endurance we will gain our lives. Now it would be easy to take this passage and take these two verses out of context and read into them that it's, it's by our own strength. In that moment, if we can do it, if we can stand firm, if we can endure, then it's by our own determination that we're saved, by our own endurance. But this comes just after the text where Christ says he will give you a mouth and wisdom. Christ is working in you. It is by God working in you that you can persevere. Now, we don't know how many hairs are on our heads, but God does. It is God that keeps our hairs from falling out. It is God that has them fall out and knows how many there are when they do. It is God that sustains every aspect of our lives. It's God who calls us. God who justifies us. God who adopts us as sons and daughters. It's God who sanctifies us. And it is he who will be faithful in bringing those that belong to him to glory. We can take comfort in this. We can take comfort that the Lord knows the end of the world. He knows the end of all things, and he knows of the coming glory. We can take comfort that he knows persecution is coming. We can take comfort that he will help us when that time comes. He is faithful, and he has promised to bring those that belong to Christ into glory with him. Whatever wars may come, whatever signs and terrors that we might face, whatever earthquakes or famines might come, whatever persecutions you are going to face, whatever might come, God is sovereign. And he has promised that you should not die, but you will persevere through it. He will bring you to himself. Because this is why Christ came, isn't it? In our passage, this this teaching comes just just in the days leading up to the crucifixion, the days leading up to the resurrection. He came to forgive our sins that we might be reconciled to God. It is only through Christ that we can be called, justified, sanctified, and then brought into glory. We don't know when all this is going to happen. We don't know when all of these signs will take place, but do not be led astray. Christ is the only way we can come to God. So don't listen to anyone who claims to know when the end is coming. Trust only in Christ. Look to him for help and persecution. And trust his word. Be encouraged and be assured that he will save you. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for how you work in our lives. We thank you that in those moments you will be with us. Lord, we cannot do this ourselves. To think of the end and how the end is coming and when the end is coming can be overwhelming. So thank you for your promise, your encouragement not to be overwhelmed. Father, thank you. May we take this word, this teaching, this hard thing to think about, this thing that we don't understand, may you take it and encourage us with it. Encourage us in your sovereignty. We thank you and we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.